This is Undisciplined. I'm Ellis Julin. European eels spend their adult lives in freshwater areas and then make a journey thousands of miles across the Atlantic Ocean to spawn near the Bermuda Triangle. And I can't imagine a better, spookier location for eels to spawn in. While the journey alone is impressive, what's even more interesting is that no one had actually found direct evidence of this movement until this year. Nearly 100 years ago, a Danish biologist named Johannes Schmidt led an expedition across the Atlantic following eels. He found younger and younger eels the further west he went, and ultimately, he found the youngest ones near the Sargasso Sea, which he assumed must be the location where the eels were spawning. But this was never confirmed until now, in the year 2022. Dr. Ross Wright set out to verify Schmidt's assumption and was actually able to trap and track eels from the Azores Islands off the coast of Portugal all the way to the Sargasso Sea. Today, I'll be talking with her about her research and about European eels. It's very nice to be here. We're glad to have you. So I just wanted to kind of open up with the first few sentences of your introduction that I feel like really kind of sums up this study and, and the background of this study and kind of the kind of exciting components of this. So um, I'll just kind of read these aloud for our listeners. The extensive surveys of Johannes Schmidt throughout the Atlantic Ocean and Mediterranean Sea in the early 20th century demonstrated, demonstrated a widespread distribution of eel larvae with a concentration of the smallest specimens in the Sargasso Sea, far from their freshwater estuarine and coastal growth habitats located in Europe and North Africa. This discovery remains the single biggest step to solving the mystery of how these eels reproduce and the location of their breeding place which has perplexed generations from Aristotle to Freud. So I think this is just so exciting, the fact that it's 2022 and and your study, this research that you're part of, is the first direct evidence we have of European eels migrating and reaching this assumed breeding place in the Sargasso Sea. It's amazing to me. So can you tell me a little bit more about this work and, and what you found and maybe a little bit of kind of context for this baffling um, researchers or generations from Aristotle to Freud statement. Yes. Well, you know, the European eel was a very common species some years ago, but it always was a mystery uh, where they actually spawned and where all these glass eels that arrived on the coast every year actually came from. So, as you said, it went back to speculation, even from the 4th century BC, it's written about. Uh but the breakthrough came when those larvae were found in the Sargasso Sea. But the other incredible thing is, even though 100 years of researchers trying, still couldn't catch adult eels in the Sargasso Sea or even eggs. So it never was actually confirmed that this was the only spawning place of the European eels. Yes, so this was the big challenge really was, could we find a way to actually track adult eels to the Sargasso Sea and confirm that this was actually their spawning grounds? So there had been, with the onset of satellite technology, the opportunity to be able to track eels. Uh, There was some attempts to try to do some from mainland Europe Uh, and off west coast of Ireland and eastern Mediterranean. But with the life of the tags, it was only possible for 
to follow them as far as the Azores. That seemed to be the furthest location that eels had been tracked to. So you tracked 26 eels from from the Azores Islands um, for about a year for this study. Can you talk a little bit more about how you go about tracking an eel or or even just getting these these trackers on them? Yes, I'd say the first big challenge was to actually catch eels big enough to uh, be able to carry the satellite tags. So despite the, it's the best technology, it is actually used a lot for things like tracking sharks and whales, so much bigger animals. So our aim was to catch eels that were over 1.3 kilograms. That was deemed to be the weight that would be most suitable to carry these uh, satellite tags. They're neutrally buoyant, so it shouldn't have they shouldn't have too much impact. But most eels, uh, if they migrate, normally will be below the size of one kilogram. So we need to f- try and find eels that didn't manage to escape early in their life history and uh, spent that extra time growing. Over those two years, 2018 and 19, we did manage to catch 26 and uh, put these tags on. So they've the tags lasted for varying lengths of time, you know, up to a year. So we have got some good migratory data back now from those tracks. But what we were delighted about was uh, we have had individuals that reach the part of the Sargasso Sea where the smallest larvae have been found. So I think we have managed to confirm that the trajectory of all those eels migrating from the Azores did head towards the Sargasso Sea. Yeah, it's so exciting. Um, since this show is broadcasted in Utah, like I mentioned earlier, um, I'm hoping you can provide a little bit of an overview of of European eels. What what they look like? Um, you mentioned earlier the glassy noodle uh, young eels and and where they're found, um, kind of throughout Europe. Yes, well, they're very similar to the American eel. You know, the European eel is Anguilla anguilla, and the European, the American eel, is Anguilla rostrata. So they do have very similar life histories. Uh, it's thought the American eel actually spawns in the western part of the Sargasso Sea, and the European eel more to the eastern end of the Sargasso Sea. But the European eel, I say, it's its distribution is from as far north as Norway uh, over to the eastern Mediterranean and North Africa. So it's got a quite a big, large distribution. Uh, so spawning is generally, uh, the spawning migration generally starts uh, in autumn. And it was thought that uh, spawning occurred in the next spring from those eels migrating but from our tracking data, we think it actually takes a year plus that the eels don't go quite as fast as we thought they might. So the American eels, not quite so far journey. The European eels have got the longest journey of any of the anguillid eels, which actually makes the migration even more fantastic. Yeah, just that amount of area that they're covering through the Atlantic Ocean is it's hard to even conceptualize. Well, it is. And 
how they find their way there is just such a mystery because uh, after they've spawned and they develop into the larvae, they're actually carried on the North Atlantic drift uh, north and then uh, towards Europe and then they spread over the continents. But the silver eels migrate a completely different route to that uh, their route from when they were glass eels. So how they know to find their way back to that spawning location is something that is still a mystery. I think it may be something to do with magnetic fields, but that's certainly not confirmed yet. And these eels are catadromous, which is a term that I hadn't thought about since early ecological classes in undergrad. Um, but this this term defines their life cycles, which are so different from maybe what we might think of here with salmonids, um, I just think about salmon and, and trout species coming in from the ocean into freshwater rivers to spawn and then dying in those rivers. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of reverse order of these eels or, or just this catadromous um, phenomenon? And then once the adults kind of complete this migration to the Sargasso Sea, it's, it's a once in a lifetime thing that they're doing. It is the reverse life cycle, really, to the salmonids because they uh, spawn in seawater and spend their lives growing in the freshwater. So after the glass eels uh, make their way back uh, across the ocean currents and get to the continental shelf, the larvae undergo this metamorphosis into what we call glass eels. So they come across as leaf-shaped larvae, which are carried and swim in the currents. And then they become a small, uh, slender-shaped glass eel, you know, about six centimetres. And then in the past, in their millions, would be making their way up the coast into fresh water. Uh, some do actually stay in the estuaries and the coastal waters, but uh, the most of them, we think, come up into the fresh water uh, They'll spend their life there feeding and growing and into what we call yellow eels. And then after several years, when they're ready to mature, they undergo yet another metamorphosis and become what is known as silver eels. I'd never really heard about the Sargasso Sea outside of probably the Pirates of the Caribbean movie series. Um, this area is located in the, in the Bermuda Triangle, which I think adds to the the excitement of this discovery and the kind of adventure aspect of this story. Can you um, talk a little bit about why this is the location of the eel spawning grounds or, or why it's been hypothesized that this is the area they've chosen to spawn in for both European and American eels? Yes, well, as we said at the beginning, it, it was always a mystery, you know, where did all these glass eels come from? And, and uh, there was never any evidence of eels spawning uh, in fresh water or in the coastal areas. In fact, they hadn't even got any visible reproductive organs within them. So I think it was Johannes Schmidt you know, about 100 years ago. Uh, well, it was just before that he was doing oceanic surveys of fish larvae and then actually came across these small larvae, which he did identify as being the young stages of uh, the American and European eels. So that was very exciting because it had never been found. The young larvae had never been found before. 
so he undertook then a massive program to do surveys through the ocean to try and find out if there are any other places he could find these small larvae. He found larger larvae going along the currents towards uh, the European coast, but no other places did he find very small larvae. And uh, that was his in, his conclusion, and he states in one of his papers that the Sargasso Sea was the only place uh, that eels go to spawn. That's both the American and European eel. In the abstract of the paper, you've you've stated that these eels have a ninety have had a ninety five percent decline in juvenile recruitment since the nineteen eighties. Um, can you talk a little bit about why why that is the case and and how they've why they're experiencing this decline? Yeah, there's so many pressures on well, all of the unwilled species. I mean, particularly the European eel, and also you know the American eel is vulnerable uh, to you know it's all the life stages. You know, once they come into fresh water, there's all the barriers to migration now that are there that the eels have to manage to climb over and negotiate all the abstraction points, uh, various pollutants. Uh, like the PCBs, uh, did affect them. Uh, but in recent years, there's also been this parasite, Anguilla crassus, which infects the swim bladder, and how much that impacts them on their big oceanic migration, we're still not sure, but pretty, it is fairly conclusive that it will impact their migration because their buoyancy control is affected when it is actually full of these nematode parasites. And that was uh, a parasite brought in with the Japanese eel through some historical imports. What we don't know and for sure is what's going on on the Sargasso Sea if there's been some critical changes in currents. So maybe the glass eels aren't managing to leave this gyre and actually get into the North Atlantic drift to come back to our coast. And that is probably a direct function of climate change affecting the currents. It is known as the perfect storm that's affecting the anguillid eels at the moment. Yeah, that's really a a cascading situation with quite a few different stressors going on. If you have parasites, climate change, anthropogenic disturbance, it's a recipe, not a good recipe for survival. Are they fairly prohibited by dams as well. I'm just thinking of salmonids kind of in the up in the Pacific Northwest. It's been a huge issue and, and topic for decades about dams and dam removal or dams blocking trout and, and salmon from making it to historical spawning grounds. Are these eels, do they have these sorts of same physical barriers to get out of the freshwater and into the ocean? Yes, they do. So it's... Uh... The small glass eels getting there are very adept at climbing various structures and can often get into various places. But even some of our barriers are just too much for them and they just can't get past some of the big flood defence sluices. So they're sort of not having access to as much habitat as they would in the past. But a lot of our land actually, especially in the east coast and uh, some of the other sort of more flat European countries such as the Netherlands, a lot of the the land is actually pumped. So there's huge pumping stations to uh, 
uh, for land drainage control. And they have a big impact on the downstream migrating silver eels because if they get drawn towards that pumped water, uh, they'll just go into the pumping station and then they've got to go through all these uh, pumps with blades. So we're doing a lot of work now on trying to replace some of the old style pumping stations with more what we're calling fish friendly pumps. So they're less damaging to eels when they pass through the pumping stations and try and get through. So did this study or this research come about to kind of address the the declines that you're seeing or these challenges that eels are facing? This study really is trying to understand more about that life cycle of the European eel for such an endangered species that we don't even know, you know how it gets to its spawning areas. It's just such a big knowledge gap. Not many people get to track eels into the depths of the ocean. I'm curious what surprised you most in this work or or what your favorite part of this experience was. Do you have any fun stories from catching and tagging eels? <laughs> There's so many stories with this expedition, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we've had some huge challenges and, you know, uh, we've had a great team of people out helping with this, uh, um, particularly the son of one of my friends from university, who I've known since a little boy, who was always really good at finding things and catching things and is a great zoologist. So he came to the Azores to help us with this big challenge and really it wouldn't have happened without him, I don't think. And uh, his girlfriend, Sarah, they put in such hard work into you know trying to find these locations and then trying to catch the eels. So you know, we've been to some extraordinary places over these islands, which is a very dramatic landscape, actually. So... Yes, we've had plenty of adventures doing it, but but you know, actually catching that first silver eel that that was quite a moment because we'd gone first time into one of the biggest islands. We didn't know so much about the rivers then, and uh, we were there for three weeks. And after two weeks of having the nets out, having nets washed away, trashed, and trying to recatch, and I just reached the point, and I thought we're not going to do it. We're not going to catch these big eels. And uh, I'd got a net full of sticks. I was pulling it out and there was a dead rat in there. So I was trying to clear all that out. And then George arrived and uh, he'd just come across the river. And uh, I said, well, I'll just get these tidied up. And he was hurrying me. And uh, I thought it was because the water levels were coming up. So I said, yeah, okay. We eventually went up got across to the other side of the river and they were standing there smiling. And then uh, they'd got a bag, opened the bag, and there was our first big eel. So I think that was quite a moment. <laughs> so uh, we thought, right, now we can do it. <laughs> and uh, actually, it was quite emotional. We just hugged each other, I think, because we were so exhausted by it all at the time. Do you have plans to go to the Sargasso Sea? when you know that your tagged eels have have made it there to try and and observe this or or see where exactly they're spawning it's something that would be nice to plan for the future if we could get that enough data to say this is the exact area where the adult eels are going to spawn or it's against this salinity or temperature front because we still don't know exactly 
where in this huge expanse, because it is over 2,000 kilometres, that the eels actually do go uh, to spawn. And what it is, is it the same location each year? Do all the eels from the different European countries go to exactly the same location or are there other locations? So I think we need to know a lot more really about where they actually find the right cues to spawn and find each other in that big area. And then it would be very nice to follow that up with some spawn, some surveys out in the Sargasso Sea. Yeah, that would add a whole nother layer to the kind of explorer. Uh... Yes, it would. Yeah, because it's never been successful so far because people have tried, but never managed to catch any adult eels. I I actually first found out about this paper from a somebody had posted about it on Twitter and they were talking about how um, there's so many mysteries pertaining to eels and then the air of mystery is just magnified by the fact that they're reproducing in the Bermuda Triangle of all places or they're spawning in the Bermuda Triangle. And it's, it's just such a, I mean, it feels like something out of a fiction book that they're moving all the way from England to the Bermuda Triangle to be spawning and there's so much that's still unknown. I was going to say, it is that mysterious life cycle that really get people interested in eels. Because uh, I think quite a few people, until they know about this, they think, oh, snake-like and recoil a bit. But when you do go into the life history and the mystery and what they go through, then you know, people become interested in them and, I think, overlook their external appearance. Yeah, they definitely give people that that squeamish snake feeling <laughs> yes yes but I think yeah I think it's overridden with that uh, interest in the life history and the importance of the general biodiversity I think is another point I do make to people that just such an important part of the ecosystems that you know, we just certainly don't want to lose the eels where do they fall kind of in the in the trophic levels of their ecosystems or their 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 roles within their ecosystems? Yeah, well, I mean, they're a food source for all sorts of creatures. Actually, when you know, masses of glass eels arrive on the coast, they are an important food source for all sorts of birds and other animals. But then in their life history in freshwater, they're a really important food source for things like you know, otters and bitten that they're their favourite food source. But also they're just important in the ecosystems, a pot scavenger. It's just all to do with the balance of the ecosystems. And when they disappear, we're finding things like otters start predating on other fish species and that impacts them. So it is all that balance that we need to keep. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've you kind of touched on this with a little bit of the kind of what's next, but what do you see as the next steps for this research? Like, you know, in the, in the short term, it sounds like you're getting more data or longer term data with these trackers that last for 18 months. Where do you see this kind of going into the future? I think, you know, when we can get all the data analyzed and try and compare it to what's actually happening in the ocean, the salinity fronts, uh, any sort of, uh, 
oceanographic features, uh, the magnetic fields. Uh, you know, there are colleagues doing quite a lot of research on this. It's trying to understand you know, what is their migratory route and what is it they're following. And I think that will help us understand you know, what, what the pressures are from that oceanic phase. And it might you know, be of importance to things like permissions for deep sea drilling if they're sort of actually drilling within particular migratory routes of uh, well, not just eels, but all sorts of uh, species. You, know, it's, you just need to know what it is that helps them to migrate and actually get to the Sargasso Sea. Uh, so we've got a lot of data analysis to do and try and understand some of that. And then just what happens within the Sargasso Sea, if we can get more actually to follow them during the actual spawning and just learn where the important locations are in the Sargasso, that, that also will be an important phase. And then uh, I think that will give us a few more clues about you know how to protect the European eel in the future. This was Dr. Roz Wright. She is a senior fisheries technical specialist with the Environmental Agency, part of the National Fisheries Services team in England. Her latest study was recently published in Nature. Thank you so much, Roz. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, if you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Ellis Julin. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.